Thank you, choir, for drawing us into a deeper awareness of God's presence. Beloved, let us pray. God, we come before you this morning with tired bodies and expectant hearts. We want to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice. So guide us by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Every spring for a number of years, cowboy turned pastor turned author Robert Fulgham wrote his very own personal statement of faith, a credo. In his younger years, his credo was lengthy, covering every possible base. He writes as if words could resolve all conflicts about the meaning of existence. As he got older, his credo grew shorter, sometimes cynical, sometimes comical, and sometimes bland. Then one year, while sitting at a gas station, Fulgham had an epiphany. He already knew most of what was necessary to live a meaningful life, and on top of all of that, the answer wasn't very complicated. In that moment, he realized that all I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. He writes, wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Take a nap every afternoon. And when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. As trite as it sounds, Fulgham isn't wrong. The most useful wisdom out there is simple, even juvenile. But that doesn't mean it's easy. We may have learned so much of what we need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be in kindergarten, but here's the rub. We ain't in kindergarten anymore. We aren't talking about sharing Play-Doh and crayons. Playing fair is a little hard when the system is rigged. And don't even get me started on what it would mean for all of us to clean up the mess we have made of the planet we are living in. It would be really nice if the meaning of life was as simple as taking a nap every afternoon. But it's not. We know that. Robert Fulgham knows that. And Ecclesiastes definitely knows that. Twelve chapters of wildly depressing yet refreshingly honest biblical prose that doesn't really seem to fit into the whole of the Bible. After all, it doesn't read like the dramatic narratives of the Old Testament. It doesn't concern itself with eternal salvation like the New Testament. There is no mention of a Messiah, no assurance of resurrection. 
If anything, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, also known as Kohelet, challenges the very ideas and ideals that modern religion is built on. Things like virtue and karma and even justice. Written over two millennia ago, you might expect this text to be out of touch or at the very least out of style. And yet its critiques and its conclusions hit just as hard now as they did back then. Now, how is this possible? Well, as Kohelet so clearly observes in his opening remarks, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Want proof? We'll just look at the time this book was written. Most scholars will agree that it was written sometime in the midst of the Persian Empire, which explains Judah's existential crisis. The memory of their exile at the hands of the Babylonians was still fresh, but under Persian rule, they were welcomed home, many of their freedoms restored, and yet still under the power of a foreign ruler. And then on top of all of that, after operating in a largely agrarian economy for so long, now they had to figure out how to succeed in an increasingly commercialized, market-driven economy, rife with investment and entrepreneurial opportunities. Opportunities that gave the appearance of upward mobility, but in reality only made the rich richer and the poor poorer. As Old Testament scholar William Brown notes, Kohelet's discourse reflects the lack of security and well-being felt among ordinary citizens. In an age of melancholy and questioning, a culture of death and disillusionment. Sound familiar? After all, like many generations before us, we too find ourselves in an age of melancholy and questioning, in a culture racked with death and disillusionment. Just like Kohelet's time, this moment in our time has laid bare our most convenient truths and shallow certainties, forcing us to really ask ourselves, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of our lives? Not ones to back down from a challenge, this fall we here at First Pres are taking on this ageless question with the help of Ecclesiastes. Last week we talked about the sacred meaning of time. While earthly wisdom tells us to manage our time, control our time, maximize our time, sacred wisdom reminds us that time belongs to God. All we can do is find joy in the time that we are in, whenever that may be. Today, we continue our journey as we explore the meaning of success. Here now, a reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools, for they do not know how to keep from doing evil. Never be rash with your mouth nor let your heart be quick to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For dreams come with many cares and a fool's voice with many words. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and right, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. 
The lover of money will not be satisfied with money, nor the lover of wealth with gain. This is also vanity. When goods increase, those who eat them increase. And what gain has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of laborers, whether they eat little or much. But the excess of the rich will not let them sleep. This is what I have seen to be good. It is fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of life God gives us, for this is our lot. Likewise, all to whom God gives wealth and possessions and, who he, and whom he enables to enjoy them and to accept their lot and find enjoyment in their toil, this is also a gift of God. For they will scarcely brood over the days of their lives, because God keeps them occupied with the joy of their hearts. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the Korean culture, the biggest birthday is actually the first one, the tol. In a time when infant mortality rates were so high, the first birthday was a milestone in and of itself, an opportunity to celebrate, feast, and wish good fortune upon a child. And perhaps the most famous part of this tradition is a ceremony known as the toljabi. In this ritual, symbolic items are placed in front of the birthday child, and whichever item they pick up first is viewed as a portent of their future. For example, if the child were to choose a pencil, they will be a scholar. If they choose money, they will be wealthy. If they choose a spool of thread, they will live a long life. Modern adaptations of this ritual have incorporated items like a gavel for a future in law, or a stethoscope for a future in medicine, or even a computer mouse for a future in tech. Each item, of course, is aspirational. No parent is going to place a lump of coal or a bill of debt in front of their beloved child at their toljavi. The ritual is meant to predict and thereby ensure prosperity, security, success. Now, my favorite part of this ritual is seeing which items the parents or the grandparents want the child to pick. Now, while the ritual is probably meant to be practiced without interference, that is no longer the case. I've seen some parents basically rig the whole thing in order to get their child to pick the right kind of success. In 2019, Gallup did a study that was its own toljabi experiment of sorts. Like the one-year-old child, parent participants were shown various profiles of characteristics and asked to choose which one they thought was more successful according to society's definition of success and their own definition. What was surprising about the results was not the categories people ranked highest as a sign of success, categories like status and education and career, but that people's personal definitions of success were almost completely opposite than what they perceived societies to be. Things like relationships and character and health. No wonder success eludes so many of us, even well beyond our youth. 
It is a destination we are constantly journeying towards, yet one we are never quite able to reach. Just like with time, our relationship with success is complicated, a reality that our wise king and teacher in Ecclesiastes knows quite well. Now, he may paint everything in human existence with a very broad brush, calling it all vanity or futility or hevel, but that doesn't mean he thinks that it's all bad or all wrong. Over and over and over again, Kohelet reminds us to find joy in our toil. He praises diligence and warns against laziness. For those who have wealth, he doesn't say, give it all away. His life philosophy is not one of sackcloth and ashes, but instead good food and good drink. So then what does he have to say about success? Well, before weighing in on the typical attributes of success, like wealth and status, the teacher does something unexpected and addresses the issue of our words, specifically how we use our words when we come before God. His advice, less is more. As Brown points out, like Jesus, Kohelet offers a terse theological rationale for guarding one's speech. God is in heaven and you upon earth, therefore let your words be few. An awareness of divine transcendence sustains an economy of human discourse. Whereas the proliferation of speech, or what I like to call the blah, 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 is just one more sign of humanity's tendency to inflate itself and thereby attempt to breach the boundary of heaven. And that right there is how the world views success. Whether it is with our titles or our wealth or even our words, conventional wisdom tells us to go big or go home. Success is what we make of ourselves, so we might as well get so big, so mighty, so powerful that you could even breach the boundary of heaven. This revelation, of course, is not news to any of us. We have all witnessed humanity's tendency to inflate itself from Eden to the front page news to the reflection in our own mirrors. But as Kohelet points out, those who are focused on making themselves bigger will never ultimately be satisfied. Their rampant consumption does not lead to lasting contentment. Even their sleep is haunted by a hunger for more, more money, more power, more status, more stuff. Like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill, the teacher warns us that if this is the kind of success we seek, then we will never get where we want to go. And if that wasn't bad enough, Kohelet doubles down. Because not only does this ceaseless striving hurt the striver, it hurts their community as well. After all, the more I seek to make myself big, the smaller I make those around me. The more I gather for me, the less I leave for you. The more land, the more resources, even the more words I amass and hoard for myself, the less land and the less resources and the, even the less words are left for you, my neighbor, to live on, survive on, even enjoy. 
No wonder he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity, a chasing after the wind. All of it is hevel. Now, the faint of heart might read Kohelet's depressing conclusion and then just close the book. After all, who likes a story with an unhappy ending? But friends, do not mistake the teacher's cynicism as a lack of faith or his darkness as the absence of light. If anything, the teacher's theology or understanding of God is so high that he wouldn't dare to think he could ever know the how or the why or the what of God's activity in the world. And so in that posture of complete and utter humility, Kohelet wastes zero words waxing poetic about the sweet by and by. But instead, he fixes his gaze on the here and now. What is the true meaning of success for us today? And according to Ecclesiastes, the answer is simple. Get small. Echoing his advice to those who dare to approach the Lord in prayer, the teacher says, remember that God is in heaven and you upon earth. God is big and you are small. God is creator and you are created. God is the one who gives and you are the one who receives. And so in light of that holy reality, the teacher warns us not to be so big as to breach the boundaries of heaven, but to be small enough to enjoy what we have been given here on earth, small enough to be able to see that any success we do have is a gift from God, and small enough to be able to share our success with others. Because even in our human discourse, our human interaction, our human economy, all of that is informed by our understanding of God. If what Kohelet says is true, if God is big, God is creator, God is the one who gives, then that means we are all a part of this sacred ecosystem. Each member valued, each member necessary, each member important, regardless of the titles we bear, the degrees we hold, and even the bank accounts we boast. Through the lens of sacred success, we are able to see ourselves as a part of a greater whole. Instead of seeing life as an endless climb or a zero-sum game, Ecclesiastes invites us to think bigger by getting smaller to look beyond our economy of one by asking ourselves questions like, where is my success from? Who is my success for? As the teacher says in Ecclesiastes 11, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Just as you do not know how the breath comes to the bones in the mother's womb, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So as I mentioned earlier, the Tolutabi is a very highly venerated tradition within the Korean culture. An opportunity for the community to dream about and forecast the future success of a little child. That said, I don't know a single Korean adult who actually attributes their wealth 
or profession to this ritual. I asked my parents the other day what item I picked at my toll, and neither of them could remember. <laughs> Regardless, I think it's safe to assume that there wasn't a stole or a communion set at my toll chavi. Now, I'll be honest, there are certain things about this tradition that give me pause. On the one hand, the items we include clearly define the kind of success we value, the kind of success we wish upon our future generations, career success, financial success, worldly success. But on the other hand, what I love about this tradition is the way the community plays such a prominent role in cheering on and advocating for and building up the future of a child. It isn't just about the success of the one. It is about the joy of the whole, the call of the whole, the hope of the whole. In that regard, Kohelet and Fulgham would agree. Everything we ever needed to know about life and success, we learned in kindergarten. Even in this age of melancholy and questioning, in this culture of death and disillusionment, the meaning of success, or perhaps the hope of success, is simple. To eat and drink and find joy in your toil. And when all else fails, I will say this. Just remember, when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. In the name of God, our Creator, Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit, our Sustainer. Amen.